Welcome to Disruptive CEO Nation, where executives and entrepreneurs access insights into the future of business and work. Candid interviews with the world's most innovative and disruptive CEOs slash game changers focus on the impact of technology and workplace culture to an organization's readiness for the future. Your host, Allison K. Summers, is the author of Connect to Influence and has coached, mentored, and worked with CEOs, presidents, and senior leaders from over 90 countries in her 25-year career as a global leadership architect. Allison is on a mission to search the globe to bring you accomplished, cutting-edge thinkers in the world of business to learn from. Now, here is your host, Allison K. Summers. I am Allison K. Summers, and this is Disruptive CEO Nation, where we want to talk with the innovators changing the game of business in the future. Today, I head to Boston, USA to speak with a founder who has been named Forbes 30 Under 30 for retail and e-commerce, Apparel Magazine's 30 Under 30, the National Retail Federation's Person Changing Retail's Future. She is also a mentor at Techstars and AOLs Built by Girls and has such a wonderful story to tell. So without further ado, Amanda Curtis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, go ahead. Tell us what your current project is. Sure. So I'm the co-founder and CEO of 19th Amendment, and we are changing the future of fashion using technology. So 19th Amendment allows brands anywhere around the world to sell direct to consumer without holding inventory. So we've totally reversed the entire retail business model. And we've done this through our technology, which allows for manufacturing of products in the U.S. in four weeks or less, which is a record turnaround. So we're really changing the way the entire industry operates. So, Amanda, if I go to the site, which I obviously have, I can go and explore all these different designs, correct? Can you walk walk us through the customer experience aspect? Sure, absolutely. So customers can go to 19thamendment.com, and it's 19th spelled out and discover designers from all over the world. We've worked with over 500 from 30 different countries. So you're really discovering the best up and coming new talent that otherwise would be very, very hard to find. You can then go in and actually shop their studios, but we like to do it in a very authentic and organic kind of way. So you get to meet the designers. You can actually talk with them see their inspiration, check out their latest collection, and if you like something, you can purchase it. So we're called 19th Amendment because the 19th Amendment gave everyone a voice in the future of democracy through voting, and we're giving everyone a voice in the future of fashion. So we really like to think, like, you can vote with your wallet of which designers will make it to the next round, if you will. And you can find product that no one else is really going to have, and it's going to be made ethically and sustainably just for you and you get to follow that journey. So once you make an order on 19th Amendment, Mm -hmm. you actually get real-time updates from the designer and from the manufacturer about what's happening. I think so many people are kind of mystified about the fashion process and how clothing is made and we are providing the most transparent and authentic experience to have with fashion. So you get updates letting you know when your fabric is in, when the manufacturer has cut it, who's sewn it, where, how, why. And at the end of that journey, you get a piece of fashion history that you can hang in your closet and tell the entire story of and potentially pass down to future generations, which I think is super special. 
Well, I think it's the personalization. I think it's just this piece that your money is affecting an individual, a direct individual. And I think that's really fantastic. Yeah, I think that is what commerce is supposed to be or should be. And we want everyone to see where their dollar is going. Like who is it actually impacting and why? So we're super transparent about how much of a cut we take, what the designer is making and the manufacturers who are involved in the process. So it's, it's more about empowering the consumer and giving them a choice as well. So you said you've worked with over 500 designers, which is just incredible in and of itself in the number of countries. How does a designer come to you and qualify to be on your site? Yeah, so we've worked over the past three and a half years building up an amazing just network and word of mouth about 19th Amendment. We're the only kind of full commerce solution, full ecosystem solution uh, for designers. It's very hard to launch a brand. Um, Traditionally, you need about 30K per collection. You need to have some sort of manufacturing system and network set up, and you really don't know where your investment will lead. So we've provided all of these solutions and we're the only one providing the full host of it. It's been totally organic on the designer side, which is wonderful. I think it really speaks to the need for what we've built and also our technology and process. But they come to us, um, they submit an application. We vet, but we don't vet so much on aesthetic. It's more on, is the brand ready to kind of take it to the next level. Are they ready to be in front of consumers? We want to have a level of curation on our site around professionalism, but ultimately we want the shoppers to decide what aesthetic should make it because otherwise we're going to be very biased on our end about who's actually allowed on the site. No, I think that's fantastic. You talked about the manufacturing piece and that's so basically you've got these three pieces and you're at the hub helping all of them connect. You've got the customer who feels like they've got a more personalized high fashion experience. And then you've got these great designers who feel like nobody is dictating necessarily how they have to design, correct? But then you have the manufacturing piece. So explain the manufacturing piece and how those companies integrate in your system. Absolutely. So I think the fact that we've built a manufacturing network through one technology and domestically is a huge feat, especially in the fashion industry. Manufacturers in the U.S. traditionally don't have access to technology. They're looking for a new kind of business model and a new way to kind of streamline and scale their operations. So what we did is we built that technology that we built for for the designers to kind of oversee their manufacturing for the manufacturers as well. And what we do is we provide them a constant funnel of orders from designers from around the world Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. So it helps to kind of understand how the retail model works in a traditional sense to understand how we're fixing it. So basically these manufacturers in a traditional sense with that 19th amendment may be busy three, maybe four times a year, probably around fashion weeks when they get orders. In between that time, they have to fire their staff, um, lay off, and then rehire and retrain every season. So it's not sustainable at all for them on a few different levels. 
what we do is we give them that constant funnel of orders, but it's also a very standardized funnel of orders so that they know that their orders have been paid for 100% upfront by the customer, the designer can pay them. The tech packs that they get, which are the instructions for making a garment, are also standardized. And they're going to get just one organized system. Traditionally, they may use Excel at most. Um, but mainly it's a lot of emails and phone calls and texts back and forth, which can become very inefficient very quickly. So for the manufacturers, we're really giving them a 21st century business tool to streamline their operations and grow, which we're finding a lot of manufacturers need right now, especially as new generations come into ownership. One of the things you, you use the word sustainable in there, and I know this is really important to you. And I know if you go to the website, it says, we're not your typical shopping site. And it says personal, and it says beautiful, and it says responsible. Explain the responsibility, because I know you've talked about waste in the industry. Mm -hmm. um, and so how is your, what you do so considered so much more sustainable? Um, so I take a very strong standpoint on sustainability in the fashion industry. My viewpoint is you could have the most sustainable fashion company and use the most sustainable fabrics and processes, etc. But if you're holding inventory, you're not sustainable at all. And that's what the traditional retail model requires is a lot of inventory. You don't know if someone's going to actually purchase it. And that just creates waste. So for us, we've created a sustainable business model that any brand can use and is sustainable on both an environmental level, but also on a business model level. So brands don't have to place inventory. They're only making exactly what is purchased. And to us, that's incredibly important because you see all of these new stories about H&M and other big companies that have a sustainable mission, but are sitting on in H&M's case, billions of dollars of inventory. It's almost attacking kind of the root of the problem, what we're doing. And it's important that customers know that by purchasing through us, they are responsible for kind of moving this model forward and having, having a place in the sustainability movement or, or just changing the model overall so that it can be more sustainable. So distribution. So everything go, through your through your business life cycle, it's, uh, we've ordered it, we've got it into the manufacturer. What's the distribution then? How do I get it as the end customer? Does it come from the manufacturer or is there something in the middle there? Yeah, it depends on the designer. So um, most of the time it will go back to the designer for a final quality assurance and the mm -hmm. designer put extra marketing materials, et cetera, in your package, which is always special. Some designers, once they're more comfortable with their manufacturer, will just do a drop ship directly from the manufacturer, which is technically more sustainable because you're eliminating that one or actually two steps of um, shipping in between. So it just depends on uh, which designer you purchase from. Well, who would you say is your primary customer audience? So primarily we have been able to attract a millennial audience, though, Overall, I think we are just attracting women from all over the U.S. and all over kind of the age demographic range because what we're finding is that more boutiques are not either shutting down or they're not stocking independent designers. They may be stocking just general brands that you can find almost anywhere because it's a safer play. 
So what we're finding is just women looking for something new and unique and that has more meaning and purpose than just anything you can get off of Amazon or um, in a department store. I think overall the unifying thing that attracts customers to 19th Amendment is what we call fashion as experience. We're not just selling product. We're not just selling you know, things on sale and we don't want you to just purchase to purchase what's new and trendy. We want you to purchase with purpose. When you purchase something off a 19th amendment, you're really getting this full fashion experience. It's almost like going back to the days of Coco Chanel and going to her atelier and understanding the vision and meeting the designer and saying, I want this, having it ordered and knowing that it's going to be made just for you and like her Paris factory. So we're really recreating that. The difference is we're using technology to do so and making that scalable and accessible. So I have to ask you, you've got over 500 designers and you have these manufacturers. So let's talk about the scaling of your business. How many full-time staff do you currently have or, or what is your model that you deliver your products? Yeah, um, so full-time staff at 19th Amendment really focused on the actual technology and marketing side of the business. Um, at any given time, it's usually under 10, which a lot of people are very surprised at, given just the size of our business and kind of the partnerships and things we've been able to accomplish. Everything that we preach to our designers around what we call stiletto strapping, which is basically bootstrapping for the fashion industry, we live ourselves. So we are a very, very scrappy team, um, and we believe in doing things in kind of a non-traditional way, which has allowed us to scale without kind of the traditional, I guess, resources that a tech mm -hmm. company of our size might have to have had at this point. Now that we know all about your distribution model and your company, I have to ask you, because you didn't found this company alone. You have a, a partner, correct? Correct. Well, tell us about your partner and how you guys met. Yeah, so my co-founder is Gemma Soul, and she is the left brain to my right brain. <laughs> um, if you're thinking about starting a company, absolutely 100% get a co-founder, because it has made all the difference in the world. Um, but Gemma and I met in 2012 at the Harvard iLab. We were both in a program um, that was kind of a personal accelerator for people who wanted to get involved in the tech startup world. I had just come out of a job in a tech startup and wanted to learn how to do it better next time. Um, the startup actually ended up going under, so I wanted to learn how to do it right. And then Gemma was coming from doing some government work down in DC for the Department of Defense and wanted just the total opposite of working. Okay, with so far you don't sound like uh, fashion startup people. <laughs> Well, I did have a fashion background prior, but we we came together, and at the time, I was also working on a fashion line that I was actually funded for. I, I was a fashion designer prior to 19th Amendment and prior to working at that tech startup, and we just said, hey, this, this business model just doesn't make sense. What can we do better? And we had just learned about lean methodologies and different ways to go about solving problems using technology and said, well, the fashion industry hasn't changed in over a hundred years. This is a huge opportunity. There's definitely a market on both sides. And we started working on it. And Gemma was coming from, you know, almost like a VC background where she was just poking holes in all business models. And I was simultaneously working in the industry. So we were basically doing our 
our um, research as we were starting to build. And we got to a point where we're just like, this has to work. There's nothing that we can say, you know, this is gonna uh, make this fail or the industry isn't ready. So we just kept going with it. And it's been an amazing journey ever since. I think our skill sets are so complementary that it's really helped us get to the next level. Okay, so now I have to go to, how did you get your financial funding to get off the ground? Sure, um, so we have raised for, well, just under half a million dollars to date, which again, people are very surprised at looking at our business and how far we have gone. Um, and that's from a few angel investors who are absolutely amazing, mainly in the SaaS space, and they were all former entrepreneurs, which has been wonderful. And then one VC who came in and is really focused on consumer products and saw this as just a brilliant way to solve some of the companies that he had invested in their problems as well. So we did that. And then we have received a few, a few kind of government grants to explore manufacturing in Puerto Rico. Oh, fantastic. So growth. Tell us a little bit about your, about your growth from did it grow faster than you expected? Were there slowdowns in the process at first? I mean, you have a platform that's so technology driven and, and we all know that getting the tech right is the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Um, so I think the thing about entrepreneurship is you really are, this is cliche, but you really are a sailor. You have to kind of go with the sea change and respond to your environment um everything looks great on paper but there's so much that you can't predict and so many things that come along the way that change kind of your trajectory so um in the beginning it was really focused on building out this manufacturing technology that's on demand because that is what is kind of like our game changer mm -hmm. and we were building it for ourselves so we were the ones overseeing the manufacturing and acting as the designer that made a huge difference because we personally went through all of the pain points and we were the customer and it allowed us to about a year and a half ago, switch over to letting the designers oversee through the platform and letting the manufacturers really have a full grasp of everything. And that in turn has allowed us to scale and work with 500 brands as a team. That's so small. There's been a lot of kind of things like that that have, almost been fortuitous um but at the time it can seem a little bit painful but it's really just reacting to the environment and that's constantly shifting and changing any lessons learned that you would tell somebody else to watch out for oh goodness <laughs> <laughs> it's own. um i think the biggest lesson learned is more on the hiring side first time entrepreneur just really understanding that process but when working with contractors, we we had contractors that came highly recommended from advisors. So you almost mm -hmm. move a layer of vetting. I would highly suggest adding a layer of vetting if anyone recommends someone else because you're almost too likely to trust that person um, or that company. So for us, it's it's really digging very, very deep, which can be a little bit painful of a process when you want to build your company yet you're stuck in a hiring process or, or vetting independent contractors but really paying attention to that process because it can cost you time and it can cost you money. I think that's really great advice. I know that 
a hard lesson I learned a long time ago in my career mm -hmm. is, you know, the ref I talk so much about, you know, your referral network and how it helps accelerate and speed your path forward. But you're right, even though those referrals are coming in, if you don't vet them and it's not matching your culture and it's not matching your mission and um, there's other things that are off, yeah, then you go, then you're back to ground zero if you have to start over again. Yeah, so. and you may have already offended that person who referred that. <laughs> yeah. No, so. I think super, super wise advice. Uh, most definitely wise advice. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with us about your work, what you're working on right now? Where can people find you? Um, so 19th Amendment.com, 19 spelled out. We are on social. Instagram is 190th Amendment. And then personally, I'm open to LinkedIn. Uh, and I'm also visible on all social accounts as well. I'm very much about sharing my journey. I know that being a female entrepreneur is tough. And I think the more that I can speak to what I do on a daily basis and maybe encourage others to follow their own path or to open up and say like, these are my struggles, these are my highlights, et cetera, the better. So I try to be as transparent as our business model is in an effort to just make, you know, this ecosystem of startup technology more diverse and inclusive. If I come back and talk to you in two years, what <laughs> is it that you hope either you are personally doing or 19th Amendment is doing? Because in the world we live in today, two years makes such a huge difference. But yeah. what, what's the long range vision? Oh, gosh. Okay. So we want to do something we call design, glo design globally, but made locally. So we have scouted out a few different areas around the globe where we'd like to expand. And basically, we'd love to have product that is made or designed anywhere in the world, but uh -huh. is made locally to you, the end consumer. And that may be outside of the U.S. So setting up manufacturing hubs in different shipping areas is a huge goal of ours. Um, and expanding this model so that it's just more accessible not only to designers around the world, but to consumers around the world as well, because I think there is an interest for this. Um, and then secondly, I'd love to be working with some bigger brands as well. We love working with our independents, but getting some bigger brands on board, I think that will speak to just the viability of the model, their desire to do something that's more sustainable and um, a little bit more innovative. So yeah, we'll see where it goes, but you can hold me to that. Well, Amanda, I genuinely thank you for, for sharing your insight. And I, I know in this edition of Disruptive Nation CEO, we spend a lot more focus on your business model and how you deliver your goods and services. I think that's just as important as everything else. I mean, there's so many aspects we could have taken your, your story. Um, I also know you worked a lot with Startup Institute of Boston, correct, and Fashion Tech Lab, and, and that you just have so much wisdom to offer other entrepreneurs. So again, thank you. And, and so to our listening audience, this is the conclusion of this episode of Disruptive CEO Nation. If you know of an innovative entrepreneur that we should be speaking with, um, go ahead and pass along my information, which is connect at allisonksummers.com. And until we speak again, keep your eye on the future. Thank you. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. 
To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.